Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien, in this extra episode. It's the holiday season, so oh what fun it is to offer you this moment in time when renowned sex advice columnist Dan Savage met renowned sex therapist Esther Perel for an extremely frank discussion of marriage and infidelity. There's really nothing quite like it that I've heard. If my mother knew I'm having these conversations. (laughs) Let's see if they put this on NPR. (laughs) If you're curious about the challenges of modern couples facing infidelity issues, buckle up for a great discussion. Esther Perel is the author of The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. She hosts the podcast, Where Should We Begin? Dan Savage is the editorial director of The Stranger and the host of Savage Lovecast. They spoke at Seattle's Egyptian Theater on October 12th. Sonia Harris recorded their talk. Please note this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Hey, everybody. Can you hear me? Am I on? Uh, welcome. If you've been to live tapings of the Savage Lovecast in the past, they're usually big extravaganzas. We usually have drag queens and strippers and performers. But not tonight, not at this live taping of the Savage Lovecast. I'm very, I'm very sorry to say, actually. Tonight, we're doing something a little differently. We have a very special conversation tonight with Esther Perel. Uh, Esther. <laughs> Esther Perel's first book, Mating in Captivity, uh, was an international bestseller. It was translated to 29 languages, and it established Esther as one of the most insightful and original voices on Modern Love, and it instantly made me an enormous fan, and I am so excited to have her here tonight. Uh, Esther is a psychotherapist with a private practice in New York City. Her TED Talks, which I hope you've watched, uh, have been viewed more than 20 million times. She is also the host of the Audible original series, Where Should We Begin?, which is fascinating listening. It is now available in podcast form. Go get it. And we are here tonight to talk about and celebrate her second book, The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. Please welcome to the stage and welcome to Seattle, Esther Perel. We have champagne to celebrate. (laughs) Writing a book is a pain in the fucking ass, so when you finish the book, you get to celebrate writing that book. So we wanted to have a little champagne. Thank you. Although we're going to have to be careful, because tonight is being taped for broadcast on KUOW. So I can't get too drunk, because then I'll start throwing F-bombs around. And we can't have that. Cheers. Congratulations. The book is terrific. Did they have champagne for you at the uh, 95th Street Y or whatever that is? 96th Street Y? No, no, it's a serious place. Okay, good. 
<laughs> so what inspired you to follow up Mating in Captivity about really uh, sex and long-term relationships and making that work um, with a book on a topic that is just so explosive and controversial, a topic that you're not allowed to bring nuance to? You bring nuance to the topic in this book, I think at great risk. Um, let me ask something to all of you, and I'll probably start the answer. If I asked you, how many of you have been affected by the experience of infidelity in your life? Raise your hand. In one way or another, in one position, as the child of the friend of the person in the triangle. I began to go around and ask this question, and many, many times, it's about 80% of the people raise their hand. And so I'm thinking, here is this experience that can shake the foundation of an entire relationship, shatter the trust, the intimacy, the whole thing. It's been ubiquitous, has existed since marriage was invented, and is often so poorly understood. And the dialogue about it is often quite polarizing, judgmental, shaming, secrecy. I mean, the whole thing itself is sh shrouded in secrecy and shame, and we can do better. We just need to do better to help the people who are experiencing this, this thing. And that was what motivated me. And then I'm not known for going for easy topics. <laughs> and we should do better on this topic. Why? Because a lot of people are in pain, because it's passed on intergenerationally, because it affects the way that we love and are loved because it has been historically and notoriously a complete gender unequal proposition. This is about power, this is about sexual politics, this is about male privilege, this is not the same story for men and women or for gay couples and straight couples. I mean, um, to just think of it in this narrow you know, lens is not enough. And then, because because I think that we need an approach that is more caring and more compassionate so that we can have a new model for the oldest sin. It is about power, and I think some of the best evidence that it was about power is the evening out of infidelity rates between men and women. Historically, men cheated at much greater rates, had more license to cheat. They also had less at risk from cheating. They were less vulnerable uh, than women were mm -hmm. economically. As women have become uh, earners, and have, having their own careers, having their own jobs, having their own incomes, you've seen with, I think it's people under 40, Hannah Rosen wrote about this in The End of Men, that women are cheating at the same rate that men are, which is just, I think, the clearest evidence that cheating, adultery, uh, was always about power, and male privilege was tied to that power, and it facilitated sort of male license. It wasn't that women were less interested in cheating or less capable of cheating, they were just more vulnerable to the fallout from an adulterous affair. So, there has always been a double standard. Um, historically, monogamy was primarily an imposition on women for economic reasons, in order to know whose children I should feed and who gets the cows when I die. <laughs> or the goats, or the camels, because this traveled across the cultures. Or the kingdom. Or the kingdom. And, um, and it's not just the economic. The most important thing that changed is contraception. As long as the threat of infidelity was a child, and a child with a color hair that was different from yours, um, that was the beginning of the threat. So you had pregnancy, child mortality, destitution, and ostracism. Women belonged to men, they would be left with nothing. 
um, not even themselves because they were completely shamed. So the consequences have always been a lot more dire for women, and nine countries today still kill women if they stray. This is absolutely not an equal story. And now, yes, women are closing the infidelity gender gap. Why? Because they have a car, like within Saudi Arabia. <laughs> they finally have a car. They can leave the house. So we don't have a clue what women want and what women will do, because we've never given them the opportunity to know. And it was never called cheating, by the way. Men were doing what, what, what it was called being a man. Let's be very clear. There was, from there to Weinstein, there's like a, a long way to go, you know? Um, and, uh, um, and then, you know, people had all kinds of very juicy theories to justify why it's in the nature of men to roam. Men are not by nature monogamous. Men are conquistadors. They're natural roamers. Who knows? You know? But it's changed, and it means that the risks are less for women. They have a growing economic independence. They have more mobility. The consequences are less dire. And if the consequences change, then it challenges one of the fundamental stereotypic thinking that men cheat, stray, because they like novelty, because they get bored, because they like variety, whereas women cheat because they are lonely and hungry for intimacy. You bet, if the consequences are severe, you better be really miserable and lonely and hungry before you take the chance. <laughs> but we don't know what she would do if the consequences were the same. I've often, uh, I've said, and, and I believe that uh, there was this moment uh, when straight people redefined marriage. During the whole debate about same-sex marriage, you kept hearing from religious conservatives and some scaredy-cat straight people that gay people wanted to redefine marriage. And the actual truth was that straight people had redefined marriage already to the point where you couldn't make a logical argument to exclude same-sex couples from the institution of marriage as straight people recreated and practiced it. A marriage is whatever the two people in it say that it is. A marriage is as egalitarian or as power imbalanced as any couple decides to make it. Uh, and there's, it's not a gendered institution anymore. And when, a marriage, when marriage became egalitarian, when it became the union of two autonomous and equal individuals by free choice, uh, rather than extending to women, in my reading, the same license that men had always enjoyed, we took back from men, we imposed on men the limitations women had already, always endured. That the monogamous expectation around, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years ago began to be imposed on men for the first time in history. And it seems to me, from my casual observations over 26 years of listening to people complain about their relationships, <laughs> that that was a disaster. <laughs> for marriage, that the ship should have been extending to women the same license Except and freedom that men had always enjoyed or exploited, uh, rather than yanking back from men that freedom. Because monogamy changed meaning. Because monogamy changed meaning. For most of history, monogamy had absolutely nothing to do with love. It was basically a structure that preserved the configuration of the family, the land, the children, the herds, the properties, the, the, the lineage. Um, the romantic ideal turned monogamy into um, the sacred cow, into the, the full expression of the uniqueness of love that has found the one and only. 
and at that point, if you bring egalitarian together, and now you make monogamy become the declaration of love, then both people are expected to do the same. And that's when you restrict it from men, but not because you restrict the freedom that they used to have. It's that both people are supposed to make that same declaration, which is that, you know, look, for most of history, people married and they had sex for the first time. Today, they marry and they stop having sex with others. You've said monogamy used to mean one person for life, now it means one person at a time. Yes. Quoting Esther Perel yes. to Esther Perel. Yes. No, no, people tell me all the time, I am monogamous in all my relationships. <laughs> 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 Makes perfect sense suddenly, right? It's like, you know, when this woman is like, I have been monogamous with my two husbands and my three boyfriends since. And it's like, this is an extraordinary new definition of monogamy, you know? So, it's one that pisses me off. <laughs> Because as someone who's in a non-monogamous relationship, I've had this experience on multiple occasions where someone has said to me, I couldn't do what you and Terry do because I value love and commitment too highly. <laughs> Terry, who I've been with for almost 25 years. Right. And the next thing out of their mouth is, all three of my marriages were monogamous. Right. And what they're committed <laughs> I to... I you on that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. What they're committed to is monogamy, not any of the fools that they marry which to me seems to put too much importance on monogamy, that monogamy is this talisman, this fetish object, this symbol of, of love and commitment, and if you fail at it, you failed at love and commitment. But even more so now, even more so, monogamy defined as sexual exclusivity is even more intense today because it comes in the West, look, in the West, in 1960, 80% of the people were in their 20s were married. Today, it's 20% of the people in their 20s are married. Which means that we don't have cornerstone marriages, we have capstone marriages. So you have 10 years, 20 years of sexual nomadism in which you can pro prolifically you know, float around. And then you find that one and only. And you, do you know what we call that 10, 20 years of sexual nomadism? No, but you're going to tell the me. The gay lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think what we see oh. now with straight people until 30, 35 is living the quote-unquote gay lifestyle right. that religious conservatives yes, were yes, freaking out about yes. 50 years ago, I which is it. not making commitment, living in an urban area, having a lot of sex and a lot of sex partners. It's just straight people took the gay lifestyle and renamed everything. <laughs> we had tricks, you have hookups, we had fuck buddies, you have friends with benefits. <laughs> and now, I, I just think, I mean, this is a, a digression, but it's really interesting to see straight people leading the gay lifestyle, gay people leading the straight lifestyle. It just shows that there was nothing gay or straight about either that's of those right, lifestyles. That's right, that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> Very well put. And so, imagine, after that lifestyle, I now am going to change this completely around because I found the person. And that person chooses me at my essence. That person is the one for whom I can cure my case of FOMO. I... You can what? I can cure my FOMO. You know, I no longer have to think that I can do better. This is the person that has captivated my imagination. This is the person for whom I'm going to delete my apps. <laughs> you know, you, be, you bet Or that this is the person I'm going to tell I'm going to delete yes, my house. Yes. Do you, do you understand when ex what exclusivity means today is that I voluntarily choose to 
restrict myself, to no longer continue in the life that I have had. It is this most voluntary imposition of fidelity. And it has a complete different meaning from anything it ever had. You know, well, how do you go from this extreme, because in, uh, if you want one more element of what gay you know, influence was, is that it's not just hookup, it's also a kind of a race to the bottom of how meaningless could it be? Not. <laughs> I think I know a different class of bottom, but please continue. <laughs> like, uh, how, I think I know what you mean. Like, how can I, I can have this as long as I don't get too invested or engaged? Yes, yes, I don't want to get dependent. I don't want to get too committed. I don't want this to mean anything. I want to stay free. Because I, I want to stay free. And if I make an emotional investment, that comes with obligations. If I use girlfriend That's or right. boyfriend, hence friends with benefits, hence hookup, hence all these new words and terms and definitions that hold people at a That's distance. That's right. And then from there, I go to the soulmate. The soulmate, which is a phenomenal new concept, because it really is the conflation between the spiritual and the relational. It's for the first time, you know, when people used to say the one and only, they used to mean God. <laughs> now they mean my partner, and, that, and they want transcendence and ecstasy and meaning and wholeness and belonging from their partner. All things that we, looked, we used to look for in the sanctuary of the divine. That person becomes one person for everything. That's why, and why am I saying this? Because you cannot understand modern infidelity without understanding modern love. Otherwise, you don't understand why it's become so shattering. It's always been painful. It never was that traumatic. It becomes traumatic when you become everything for me. When I get from you everything I used to get from traditional marriage, companionship, economic security, children maybe, family life, social respectability, and you are my best friend, my trusted confidant, my passionate lover, my intellectual equal, the best parent, the person who inspires me in my career. It's one person to give you what once an entire village used to provide. <laughs> you know, when that person cheats on you and you thought you are so special, you bet you feel you're not. Otherwise, you cannot understand why infidelity has become the deal-breaker and the leading cause of divorce in America. So I'm wrong, because I believe, and I've said, uh, I think 8,000 times uh, a day into my podcast tape recording machine, <laughs> that we experience infidelity as a relationship extinction-level event because that's what we tell ourselves that it is, or that it must be experienced that way. But it, we, we tell ourselves that because of the model that we're living in. So what do we do? How do we walk back all of the crap we've heaped up, all the expectations, all the needs, all the uh, affirmation that we've heaped up on one person who chose us? How do we get it back to the village or the bathhouse or wherever else we might get <laughs> more support? You get support in the bathhouse? <laughs> no. <laughs> I've never actually dropped my pants in a bathhouse. I have this sort of hyper sense of cooties, like I can't share a can of Coke with my sister. Like, putting a dick in my mouth that's been in 30 other mouths is just not a place I can go. If my mother you asked. knew I'm having these conversations. <laughs> Let's see if they put this on NPR. A little like cut here. 
forgot. I did for a moment. <laughs> so if I may rephrase my question. <laughs> if we experience infidelity and adultery as shattering because uh, what marriage now means is I am your one, you are my one, together we are this transcendent whole uh, and mm -hmm. you are where I experience divine, you're my best friend and you're my lover and my security and my family and da 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 da. How do we make infidelity, which is going to touch almost every truly long, long, long-term relationship, how do we make it less shattering? How do we walk it back? So, I'm going to do a little detour, because when I say shattering, I actually think there are three unique places where, where you can really see a new definition about the pain. It's a new meaning to the pain. The pain has always existed, and infidelity has existed throughout, for every model of marriage, for that matter. It just means something else. It shatters the grand ambition of love, meaning I'm not so special. But then, it also shatters my identity. I thought I knew who I was. I thought I knew my life. I thought I knew who you were, and you, by doing this, are breaking the coherence of my life. I no longer know the story of my life. You know, it's one thing to not be sure about what's going to happen in the future. It's another thing to start questioning the past. You at least think you remember the past, but now you wonder if this was really this, and when we were sitting there, you were under the table doing something. You know, when you said this at my birthday, and you were calling, and everything gets redefined, and you don't trust, not just that you don't trust your partner, you no longer trust your own perception. And you don't trust yourself, because if you could have been so not aware of what was going on, what can you hold on to? And that's the feeling of the shattering. And your question is, there's two different questions, is how do we make this not be the end? No, no, don't do this to me. Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to drink alone. <laughs> you know, I mean, one thing is, for me, part of writing the book was, is that, assume this is what happens, does that mean it has to be the end? Maybe sometimes it is. An affair will break the relationship. But sometimes it may also remake the relationship. And if so, how do people go about doing this? And more importantly, don't confuse the feelings of the affair or the infidelities with your feeling about the relationship. That I began to think because you know, I could write about chronic philanderers. I could write about all kinds of people who do nasty stuff. But that wouldn't be so interesting because you expect it. You start, you end up writing about the things that you research and that surprise you. Such as, I too began from this notion, this must happen in a relationship if there is some problems. Something must be missing or you wouldn't be going to look for it elsewhere. And then I began to realize that this is not what I was hearing. I was hearing people often tell me, I have a good relationship. We are together 17, 25, 32 years. We're not talking here about any you know, repeat offenders of any kind. We're talking about very faithful people who've been monogamous their whole life, who often love their partners and their life, and tell you, I'm having an affair. I crossed the line that I never thought I would cross myself, that I would have been judgmental about before. I can't believe I'm doing this and now begin unpack this whole thing. And that notion that not all affairs are the consequence of troubled relationships. Some of them have actually not much to do with the relationship at all. It has to do with the individual? 
It has to do with the individual. And all the time when you call it cheating, in a way, you don't allow for any of that unpacking to happen. And how do we do that without then being looked at as, oh, you're making excuses for the people who do transgress and betray, or you are condoning, or you are making light of it. But in fact, maybe it's not what one is doing. What one is really saying is, Transgression is a part of human nature, and we need to understand it, even its dark side. Affairs are always a dual perspective. It's what it does to you, the hurt, the betrayal, the deception, the lies, the secrecy, and what it means for me, which is sometimes about longing and loss and, and not wanting to leave you as much as I want to leave the person that I have become. You write about non-monogamous relationships, and you point out, rightly so, that it is possible to cheat in an yes. open relationship. And you describe uh, situations where people in open relationships, you have cases, couples that you're working with, where one cheated. And you say, and I think it's really uh, a brilliant insight, that it's not so much cheating, it's transgressing. That we as a species have this need to make rules and break rules. Mm -hmm. Is the solution then to make fewer rules? Attached to a relationship, not anything goes, not whatever you want, not there's no leash, but when I look at... Do you know what is Jack Morin's famous erotic equation? Mm -hmm. Excitement is attraction plus obstacle. <laughs> the obstacle is the rules. There is, first of all, no system without rules. Every organism, every organization, every relationship has rules. You can have different ones, you can have looser ones, you can have those that say you can do all of this, and then you will have the person who will go and go for the one little thing they were not supposed to do. <laughs> you know, there is something that has to do with the power of transgression. Children know it very well, and they have that gleeful look at you because they just know that, the, you know, that defiant look that says, I am doing what I want. Even when it's your own self-imposed rules, because Many times it's nobody else put the rules on you. You created your life, you created your box. But there is something about breaking your own rules that is enormously powerful, generative, enlivening, and at the same time, destructive, painful, betraying, and violating. It's and, both things are happening at the same time. And sometimes people want to destroy. I call it slamming the hand down on the self-destruct button. There are people who cheat in a way because <laughs> they want to get caught because they want out and they'll blow it all up. But sometimes people just want to feel like they almost blew it all up because that helps them see with fresh eyes the thing that they almost destroyed, the thing That's that they almost lost, the thing that they risked. There are cases, I think, where people cheat and then coming out of it, particularly if they don't get caught and they keep their mouths shut, mm -hmm. they recommit in a way to the relationship with new eyes, with fresh eyes. They see everything that they shoved under the middle of the table and, and rolled the dice and almost lost and value it again anew. You know, one of the most interesting research, I've actually not talked much about that, but there's a whole field of research about edge behavior, edge psychology, people who do extreme sports and things like that. And there is an enormous, enormous amount of thinking that goes into that field that actually 
is part of the grandiosity that people experience when they are having affairs or transgressing. Because you do feel grandiose. You, you, your rationalizations are always grandiose. They entitle you, they give you a reason why you deserve this, they give you an explanation for why this is the thing that you need to do right now, and, um, and it's one intricate web of justifications. Afterwards, you look at yourself and you can't believe you thought any of this. I was like, what was it? Like, how do we have a way to just like... I want to share a story about... ...ensnare ourselves. I want to share a paragraph from the book because I think it's, uh, it's early in the book, but I think it's a paragraph that gets you in trouble, and I want you to talk about that kind of trouble. <laughs> um, because I believe that some good may come out of the crisis of infidelity, I have often been asked, so would you recommend an affair to a struggling couple? My response, a lot of people have positive life-changing experiences that come along with terminal illness, but I would no more recommend having an affair than I would recommend getting cancer. But in your practice, working with these couples, I've seen it too, sometimes the affair shakes things up and the couple is stronger and better after the affair. Mm -hmm. That the affair is this kind of winnowing some couples come through the affair and they're stronger and better. Some couples come through the affair and it's a detente uh, without much love or peace. It's just a, a, a low simmering conflict and they put it on the back burner and ignore it and they're in denial about it. But some couples come through an affair renewed. Can I read something? Yes, of That answers this? <laughs> While you, we we you, are talking about a book after all, so... Um, you were saying, like, give a rule to a child and you will see the child, like, violated in a small way. It reminded me while you looked this up of something my son once did. Uh, my son got 86 from a restaurant that we went to all the time when he was four years old because he walked up to the cake cart and went to touch it, touch one of the cakes, and the owner of the restaurant said, don't touch the cake with your fingers, and he looked at the owner and licked the cake. <laughs> I was so proud. <laughs> But we all want to lick the cake at some point in our lives. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful image. Look, um, there is very, if any, in many areas, people will tell you that you learn from crisis, that you, turn, you can turn it, the danger into an opportunity, that from, from, from betrayal, from the ashes, you come back to life. From, you, you, you build from the places that are the lowest. On this one, if you dare to say, that actually some people can come out of this experience stronger, more honest, more resilient, and more thriving, it very quickly becomes, then you're saying that this is a good thing? It's like, how does it slip into a good thing? It's absolutely not a good thing. Nobody would ever recommend, and for that matter, humanity didn't wait for Esther Perel to cheat. Esther Perel wrote a book because so many people do it. <laughs> No, this is this like, who has that kind of a power? But this subject, if it is not condemned, then you are very quickly seen as condoning it. It is, the pull is towards black and white, victim and perpetrator, good and bad, and yet the dilemmas of desire are way more complicated than that to be reduced into simple categorizations. And everybody knows that, that has been in this situation, even the people who said, I catch you, you're dead. 
which is the, basically the extent of negotiation on monogamy in many straight couples, you know. And then when it happens, no, it's not so simple. You have a life together, you have a history together, you have maybe a family together, you have extended, you, have, you know, to dismantle a relationship is to dismantle a whole network of connections. That is not always what people want to do. And what is happening today is that it used to be that divorce carried all the, the stigma and the shame, and now it's choosing to stay when you can leave is the new shame. So person after person sits in my office, you know, betrayed by their beloved and unable to talk about it with anybody else because they're going to be judged for being weak, for not, for not throwing the dog on the curb, for letting themselves, you know, be walked over, and people will ostracize them for not standing up. And standing up means one thing only, is to get out. And it's standing up not in defense of the relationship or even your own dignity, it's standing up in defense of monogamy. That monogamy is the ideal. Monogamy is the altar on which we will sacrifice everything. That so you, or, you have to divorce your husband because he cheated on you, otherwise you don't value monogamy. Or that this betrayal tops all others. And, that, and there is where some other honesty needs to come in. People know the relationships they've been having. People know, you know, that they may have been... I had a, a, a guy in my office, you know, he's like, you, with an S, you know, I at least have not been do, sleeping with other people, and, and, and he just goes at her and has been going at her for, for forever, you know, contempt, indifference, neglect. And I, at one point, really needed to say to him, you know, betrayal comes in many forms. I am really sorry. You know, you have society on your side. Because you did not have sex with somebody else, then you can have the moral superiority. But in my mind, I was thinking, maybe you didn't do it because you're not such a likable person. And, uh, <laughs> you, know, you couldn't trick a second person into taking you, know, you to bed. But meanwhile, she's for the first time with someone who's actually kind, treats her well. She finds that she can, for the first time, talk and have been be listened to, and she's actually quite smart. And I'm thinking, you know, betrayal comes in many forms. And that's when I wrote that line that you always come back to. It's like the victim of the affair is not always the victim of the marriage. And you're not allowed to say that. And if you say I, that... In my office, I say it. Because the people... Because when I say it, it's because they know it. And if we're going to be honest, then we're going to be accountable. And accountable is a range of behaviors in which you take responsibility for the ways that you show up or don't show up. If I have a person now and it's like, doesn't want to be touched, has no interest in it, demeans the partner every time the partner the slightest initiative, for all kinds of reasons doesn't want to be touched, I understand it, but is waiting for the partner to go elsewhere so that that person can say, he or she cheated on me. And I am too privy to the games people play in their relationships to just adhere by, by a, a standard by which behind which people will hide when, when it isn't necessarily the truth. And if we're going to look for truth and for honesty, then we need to go for a different, more complex and more holistic kind of honesty. There was something you wanted to read? Yes, because I, I wrote about three outcomes, three, you know, the people who stay the sufferers. They stay together, three groups of people who stay together in the aftermath of an affair or affairs. 
And one group, I call them the sufferers, the supplicants. They are together, but they are quite miserable. This has become the, the epicenter of their relationship. They talk about it all the time. It's kind of swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. <laughs> you know, that's the definition of resentment. And then the second group, uh, uh, I think it's a 12-step line. It's not my original thought. And, um, and then the second group are the people who are kind of happy that, the that this insanity is moved on and that they can reconnect and regroup and go back with their life and, 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 and be rational again and, and not be completely out of control and in this, this descent. And then there's the third group, which I call the explorers, because I learned a lot from them, because that's the group that allowed me to make that statement. Sometimes people come out of this experience better than they were before. That still doesn't mean I would recommend it. <laughs> the explorers. I've been particularly interested in a third category of couples, those for whom the affair becomes a catalyst for transformation. These explorers come to see infidelity as an event that, though insanely painful, contains the seed of something positive. When faced with the collapse of the world they knew, these couples home in on each other with a level of intensity they haven't experienced in years. It's not uncommon for them to experience a combustive rekindling of desire that is a potent mix of anxiety and lust. Fear of loss is the spark plug that sets it off. They're deeply engaged, in pain, but alive. The explorers have taught me much about what lies at the core of resilient relationships. Madison and Dennis always struck me as being this kind of couple. Uncovering, sorry, the uncovering of his affair threw them into turmoil, but I remember noting during our sessions that they had an uncanny ability to express and accept a wide range of feeling without demanding premature closure. Their tolerance for ambiguity and uncertainty opened up a space for exploration in which they could more deeply reconnect. In contrast with the sufferers, who conceive of their ideal in moral absolutes. The viewpoint of the explorers is more fluid. They more readily distinguish wrong from hurtful, paving a smoother road for clemency. Several years later, when I touched base with Dennis and Madison, they affirmed that they managed to, to sustain their wild swings without either of them marching off to a divorce lawyer. Their grief revealed new facets of themselves and each other. Their first marriage was over, and they would never get it back, but they could choose to have a second one with each other. In the process, they were able to turn the experience of infidelity into an enlarging emotional journey. When they speak about the affair, it is clear that they identify it as one event, not the definitive event in their long history together. One sign that they have successfully metabolized the events appears in their language shifting from you and me to our. Madison doesn't talk about when you did this to me, rather they both talk about when we had our crisis, recounting a shared experience. Now they're joint scriptwriters sharing credit for what they produce. What started outside the relationship is now housed within. For Madison and Dennis, the affair has become a landmark integrated into the broader geography of their lives together. Above all, they know that there are no clear-cut answers, 
and they're able to discuss the betrayal with a fundamental acceptance of their human flaws. Madison and Dennis's relationship feels much richer and more interesting, but it also can feel less secure. They have added novelty to the enduring, mystery to the familiar, and risk to the predictable. I'm not sure where all of this is going to take us, but dull it certainly is not, Dennis says. If before they were facing dead ends, now they don't know where they will end up. But the very fact is more exciting than frightening, and they are in it together. To repair is to repair. Hmm. There's a thing that... Uh, Sorry? The mic, is the mic doing something? Sorry? I thought the mic is doing noise like that. Yeah, no? I didn't know what the clicking oh, is. But okay. Is it possible to, in your office, take a couple who are the supplicants or the sufferers and turn them into the explorers? I'll tell you, I had a couple that's actually going to be in, uh, in the podcast, Where Should We Begin?, which are unscripted, anonymous, uh, live couple therapy sessions. Not of my patients, but um, she goes to the doctor and comes back with an STI. Um, and they found out about it not nine months before they come to see me. So I'm not seeing them in the immediate crisis. There is a crisis phase, there is an insight phase, and there is a vision phase. It's kind of the way I lay out the work uh, that I do with couples who want to see what are they going to do together, or maybe not. And um, one thing that I noticed is in the midst of talking about how terrible it was and, and finding this out and, 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 and what he didn't... And, and then two minutes later, they would talk about the shitty backgrounds they came from and how they had built this incredible family together and how he helped her with the alcoholic father and how she helped him with... And they had this uncanny ability to be furious, she, at him, and then after that talk about what a decent human being he was as a father, as a son, as a, you know. And the same, it, it was that ability to not see the person just as the sum total of all of that. Because in the midst of all of this, you know, you have people who completely disappear and they're just gone and, and they're irritable every time you talk and, you, you know, the, the, these are the, the signs kind of thing, right? But then you have people who, in the middle of all of this, are still going to visit your mother at the hospital every week and taking care of your alcoholic nincompoop brother and, 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 and dealing with the family and providing and, and helping you write the book that you never could write. Demonstrating their loyalty to you in so many other ways that don't just involve their genitalia. Right, right. Loyalty and fidelity are not always the same thing. And so when, when people have, have that ability, you know that the prognosis is much better because they ha there is a robust relationship behind it. When you take a, the sufferers, who sometimes you don't know why they are, they can't be with and they can't we, we, be without. And it's not always clear that it was so much better before. But the affair is one event that just demonstrates the paucity of, of resources in the relationship. Can you turn it around? It's not so easy. It's not, um, you know, there are times when I have looked at a couple and, you know, I do this for 35 years. It's, it's, um, it's not an exact science, but I have a, a pulse. And uh, there is a couple in the book 
because it was the first and only time I did this, where in the first half hour, I said, you, this is over. This is finished. Because I, I How had, did they react? Well, it's, That's not I, what they were paying you for. No, absolutely not. He, they were absolutely, there to be repaired. He, I'm on the 22nd floor, and he would have thrown me out the window. Um, and I completely understand it. But I knew, I have gone back to them 10 years later to ask them, what was it like for you that I did this? And I wrote about it. It's a, I, I had to shorten it, but I have all the letters. And because I was always curious, and now I had the, an ex, a reason to go and, and reach out to them. He had a father who cheated on his mother for years. He had promised himself he will never be like that guy. He will not leave the family. He will keep it together. He learned about his father through a friend of the mother who met him in the mall. This is about, you know, to tell or not to tell, you know. And he has a wife with whom he, till today, has a wonderful friendship. They've raised their son together, the whole thing. But I knew she was not going to touch him. She did not want to touch him. Whatever the reasons. I think she never fully understood herself why. And I thought, you are going to be miserable. He was bursting out of his skin, begging her, love me, make love to me, be with me. And she couldn't do it. She was having the affair. And, uh, and I thought, I need to set this man free. I need to set this man free from a, from a, a promise that he made that, that, he, that wasn't his responsibility. And, and I said, you're done. So at first... He, he, you know, he was like a loaded gun, and I said, can you put the gun in the drawer? Because, you know, and, and I held it. You hold this. You create calm, you create structure, you create reassurance, and I said to him, you are going to come through this. You will have a better life. You do not have to live like this. You do not have to be a beggar of love. You are an amazing guy, so is she, but this isn't going to change. I, 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 you know, I couldn't find in her uh, the slightest motivation and um, he thanked me and thanked me and thanked me. That's not to say this was the right thing. It's just that um, it's nice to know. <laughs> it's just <laughs> nice to know. Um, and they, they, they meet, they go to the games, they have lunch together, but they were not meant to be a couple. One last question, and then we're going to take a little break. Um, I'm often told that I put too much importance on sex. <laughs> You are a sex columnist. Yeah, a sex columnist, right? <laughs> uh, like a sports columnist who puts too much importance <laughs> on scoring. <laughs> and yet, uh, the people who tell me that I place too much importance on sex, uh, usually when we're having an argument of the fact that I will sometimes give people permission to go and cheat. I think there are circumstances under which cheating is the least worst option. I also think there are some cases, some relationships, where someone has grounds. Uh, to cheat, and are, they're not the victim of the affair, but they are indeed the victim of the marriage, a marriage they can't extricate themselves from without damaging their partner, and it might be better to stay and cheat. But what I often hear from people, I put too much importance on sex, and these, people who, going. these people who say this to me are invariably the people who also say, if there was an infidelity, if someone cheated, you have to end the relationship. It is over, and what I say to them is, you tell me I put too much importance on sex, and I look at a marriage and I see family, children, a history together, property, two extended families knit together, a community, really a village of people who come together by, because of this couple. 
And I look at all of that on one side of the scales and a blowjob on the other side of the scales. And I go, that, this weighs more than this. But the people who say I put too much importance on sex, they do this. They say that this blowjob is more important and carries more weight than all of, all of this must be discarded because of this blowjob. Okay, but that's because they're not thinking about the sex, actually. So I began this work, actually I began the work on mating in captivity. Um, I kind of was inspired by the Clinton scandal. Um, and I, why? Because lots of different things were interesting there. But one of the things that struck me in terms of how America can put adultery as a matter of national political agenda <laughs> was that in this country, as you say, you can divorce three times. Nobody blinks an eye. There is massive tolerance for that dissolution and dismantlement of entire family systems. You could be Newt Gingrich's adulterous partner and then become Donald Trump's ambassador to the Vatican <laughs> in the case of Callista Gingrich. His third wife, his adulterous partner, ambassador to the Vatican. Anyway, please continue. I'm Catholic, I have a capacity to be shocked by that. <laughs> I'm going to continue where I Please. was going. <laughs> the thing that struck me is that the rest of the world that is, so multi, basic tolerance, much tolerance for divorce, zero tolerance for transgression. But the rest of the world has always opted the other way around, especially when it is more family-oriented. It has always made a compromise around the infidelities by the courtesy of women, let us be clear, in favor of the preservation of the family in order not to have this dissolution takes place. So um, when people put what you call the sex above, in, in America, people tell you it's not the sex, it's because he lied or she lied. It's the deception, it's the betrayal, it's the violation of the and trust. And you believe them when they say that? Because I think it's the sex. Um, I think that... Um, it varies, actually. But the interesting thing is, for me, how different it is. I've gone around the world asking these questions now since 2009, from Muslim countries to Christian countries to secular Europe, Western Europe, Southern Europe, South America, you know, uh, Middle East. I, I, it's very interesting what people come with. Like, if I am in Argentina and I do an entire day of training on the subject with therapists from and they have live stream to Ecuador, to Peru. And I go an entire day and nobody talks about lying. And I'm like, how is that possible? We're not talking about lying. In the States, this would be one of the first things, secrets and lies, is, and there is explanation. I can explain to you why. And they answer me because that, first of all, it's an obvious thing. If there is an infidelity, by definition, you're lying. That's kind of part of the territory. And the next thing they tell you is we've been lying since the Spanish came around. <laughs> You know, lying is not where they get all... Jealousy is the thing that is going to fire them up. Jealousy, which in America, you can look at book after book about infidelity, especially the clinical books, there is no mention of jealousy. My colleague Michelle Schengman did an entire research on that. The jealousy does not appear, because Americans are not jealous, they're angry. <laughs> They replace it. Jealousy is not allowed in a pseudo-egalitarian model. You're not allowed to be jealous anymore. 
right? So you can see themes that are culturally very central in one place and absent in another. Here, secrets are bad because the notion is that intimacy is into me see and there is a tremendous value on transparency. Not keeping secrets is the full expression of how close we are. Can any relationship survive transparency? <laughs> I lied to my husband like three times before breakfast. <laughs> so, but here's the next thing. When you, if we, I'm happy to ask the, the audience tonight, you know, the vast, the dominant view is that lying is selfish, lying is self-interested, lying is bad. The concept that lying can be protective, that lying can actually be caring, that lying can actually be, a that a certain opaqueness is actually preferable to the kind of moral truth of candor, those are very culturally determined values. In many parts of the world, people think that lying can be caring. Here, this is blasphemous, you know, so, you lie, you do small lies. It's the same thing when people say, I can't trust. Of course, people lie to their partners on all kinds of things. People also, when they say, I cannot trust you anymore, they still do. They still share the finances, they share the kid, the house is unburned. They still trust them on a lot of things. They don't trust them on this, but they don't say, I don't trust you for that. They say, I can't trust you anymore. As if before they trusted you, them on everything. I never left the kids with him, I never left the car with her. I never. There's so many things for which they didn't trust each other. But it goes in absolute and that doesn't help us. It doesn't help us if we choose to stay, and it doesn't help us if we leave, because we then leave with these legacies that make it so much harder for us to love again. All right, we're going to take a short break. If you don't already have a copy of The State of Affairs, Elliott Bay Books is in the lobby uh, selling copies of The State of Affairs. Esther and I will be back in just, Esther and I will be back in just a few minutes to answer your questions. Okay, to start oh the second half of the show, I'd like to offer you some of the recreational marijuana that's legal here in Washington State now. <laughs> You'd like to join me in a lozenge? Ah, it's, a, it's a lozenge. It's a lozenge. Wow. You won't be stoned until like 10 minutes after the Q&A is done. <laughs> so it's perfectly safe. I'll start a little later. <laughs> no, later. Oh, later? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to have a lozenge. So uh, we're going to take your you questions. You know your candy. I don't know your candy. So... <laughs> Sorry? I said, you know your candy, you, you're timed already. You know exactly how your system reacts and when. I don't know your candy. <laughs> I'm happy to share my candy with you. <laughs> and my knowledge of my candy. I see. My candy is sweet. <laughs> Sounds so dirty when you put it that way. Um, we have so many questions. Can you ever say something that doesn't have a double meaning? <laughs> That was kind of a string of single entendres, actually. Uh, we have so many questions, we won't be able to get to them all. We also are going to have microphones in the audience, so if there's a, somebody who wants to ask a question into a microphone, uh, you are welcome uh, to raise your hand, and uh, Lindsay or uh, Tracy will come and find you with the mic. Uh, but in the meantime, 
Uh, let's take some of the questions that were submitted on cards in advance. I'm going to read two together because they touch on similar themes. Uh, any advice on regaining trust after an affair, especially when much time has passed since it happened? It's been over a year, and I still feel like I'm waiting for bad news. I didn't stray, but I'm the one who has to work through the consequences. And does a couple need to go through a grieving process after an infidelity? If so, can you say a little bit about how that process works and how long it lasts? Oh, this is beautiful. Um, I will just give you a, a, a tiny bit. So I wrote chapters upon chapters about that. Um, and you can hear it, actually, also in the sessions, in the podcast, uh, how I, I lay it out. But in the beginning, in the immediate aftermath, one of the most important things is that you experience the loss of the predictable future. Both people. You thought you'd know where your life goes, and then suddenly you have no idea where... You know, unless you are that certain I'm out of here, I'm gone, you really don't know. So you have a bit of a loss of identity, you have, the, you have a, sh a shaken ground, you have the loss of the predictable future, you have to kind of put the pieces back together of the story of your life. And, um, and in the grieving process, in the first phase, in the crisis phase, the focus is really on the person who has just learned this. You know, it is on the hurt partner. Because often when one person is discovered or, or reveals it, your nightmare may be over, but the other person's nightmare has just begun. And the first thing, the, this is the foundation for the repair, is that you need to be able to tell me that you, and show me, and I have to believe you, that it, it, just, it, it pains you to see what you've done to me. It has to be remorse for causing the hurt and guilt, even if you think that what you experienced was one of the most important events in your life. You may not feel guilty for the affair, but you have to feel guilty for hurting your partner. And that separation is actually very, very important. If I don't feel that you realize what you've done to me, I have nowhere to go. And this, we know that the acknowledgement of the wrongdoing is the first thing. Then from there, the next thing that is really significant is that you, the person who, who had the other relationships, has, becomes the vigilant of the relationship. And what it means to be the vigilant is that, you know, what happens is I start to ask you questions. I ask you the same question again. And, Tell me this again. Remind me. So when were you? So, so, so this doesn't make sense. Start from scratch. So you went there, you met. You know, you can't put it together. Your mind just cannot grasp it. And since today, you're not just finding a little bit of lipstick or some, some receipt somewhere, but you often have been digging into the digital archive, you actually have two years of texts in front of you. You are just being cut, you know, by a thousand cuts, you know, and you, 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 hear, you heard it, you, you read it. You know, what am I supposed to believe? What you're telling me now or what I saw there? It is overwhelming. And I need you not to think, I've already answered you this question once, how long is it going to take? How many times are you going to ask? Many, many. And I'm not doing this to annoy you. I'm doing this because I'm trying to recreate coherence for myself. And you need to bear with me. You had a dissociated state for all that time, because love is a dissociated state, even if it was a deep experience like that. And, and, and part of the, the shock of the person who comes back is to realize where, what they've done. So the vigilant is that you ask me, how are you? You ask me, is there something you want to talk about? And this goes to the second question about the trust. 
you know, is that the other person say, I, I just saw your face, I just saw that thing come over you, I just saw, no, we didn't go to this restaurant. You know, no, I didn't bring her home. No, you know, um, that, that is not where, you know, I, I, I didn't take him to the, all the places where we had gone together. You just, you, if, because if you talk about that, then I, the receiver of this, can actually think about something else. Otherwise, I am stuck thinking about this because the one thing I want to make sure is that you don't forget and that you don't do it again. If you are the one who brings it up, then I know that somebody is holding the memory of this thing, and I can actually talk about the relationship. So I do a lot of work of letter writings. I mean, I have people who have to write a letter that says, I have not been faithful one day since we got married. And sometimes that's 35 years, you know? And I have loved you, and I have been, you know, it's this very, um, I've, I, uh, you have been the most important person in my life, but I have not. And it has nothing to do with you. And I, by the way, was not faithful in my previous one either. And you write these letters of, of real accountability, and they take a long time. We write, we edit, we come back. And you, you, you look at yourself as a flawed individual, and hopefully you still hold yourself in high regard. That's the definition of self-esteem. Do you think it's wise, if you have access to the whole digital archive, the, the, the record, the day-by-day, moment-by-moment... To go look at it? To and look really, at it. Or no. is that something that should be deleted and not looked at? But you know, it's something You talk about it as us. like a thousand cuts, but are you throwing yourself on the pile of razor yes, blades? Yes, you do. You do, because you look at it and you can't believe it. And instead of saying, I don't want to see this, you say, I need to know. I need to know more. I need... You... It is... It is like... Do you recommend the people? No, no, it's like watching 9-11. You know, I live by the towers, and every time people were watching it again, it's overexposure. It's a terrible thing, but you can't stop it. You can't stop it. And I do a lot about helping people to stop. So one of the things I do is I, I create a distinction between investigative questions and detective questions. And, I'm sorry, what question? Investigative and detective. Detective is... You know, how many times did she come? Did he scream? Did she scream? Was it better? Was it harder? Was it this? Was it that? Like all these sordid details that are going to keep you awake at night and are not going to tell you anything. Nothing. Because the fundamental truth is that trust is a leap of faith. Trust is our ability to live with what we don't know. If you have to know all the details, you will not trust. You will be a scavenger, but you won't be trusting. Investigative questions, I have about 150 of them, is really, why did this happen? Why now? What were you looking for? Did you find anything there? What is it that you found there? That why, for why, why couldn't you find it with us? Why did you purposefully not allow you to have this with us? What did this mean for you? Did you want me to find out? Are you relieved that you were found out? Are you relieved? Do you want me to forgive you? Do you think you deserve to be forgiven? Would you, would you respect me more if I didn't forgive you? You get the sense this is a whole different level of questions. And those questions are not victim questions. Those are very empowering questions. Do we have any questions from the audience? <laughs> Can we get a microphone down front? Here comes Lindsay, right here. Our very first audience member tonight. <laughs> Thank you. How do we as individuals, but as part of a collective movement, start to open the dialogue about this? Because no one talks about it. We are, right now. We are here, but... Yes, well, that's what I am. I go from place to place 
country to country. I'm going to be in Mexico next month. It's going to be the second time I'm holding town hall meetings like that to talk about this and about sexuality in Mexico City. It's in Puebla. It's even not in the city. It's never happened. Last time we had 1,500 people. And, you know, you create campaigns of public health, and relational health is public health. Thank you. Here's another question from the pre-submitted. Why do we have to make time for sex? Why doesn't sex make time for itself, pushing its way through in our busy lives? <laughs> oh, the myth of spontaneity. You know, that kind of thing that falls from the heaven like a deus ex machina while I'm folding the laundry, you know. Um, does anybody ever think that way when they're going to play tennis? It just appears? <laughs> or to the gym? Or do people actually think, I got a schedule, I got to find a partner, I got to get a court, I need to find my racket, I need to put on my clothes, I have a whole ritual of preparation of what I need to wear to, you know, does somebody suddenly find themselves on their surfboard? Or do people actually, you know, <laughs> this kind of essentialism. Spontaneous snowboarding is the worst because you don't have any gear. <laughs> it's like, you know, we went from sex is a sin to sex is natural. And when we went from sex, when we went to sex is natural, it became this sex is automatic, spontaneous. It just appears. It takes me over. Anything that's going to just happen in a long-term relationship already has. I think... <laughs> <laughs> I think the attitude that sex should be spontaneous is kind of tied into the idea that sex is sinful. That if you get swept away, if sex just breaks out and happens, you you're not responsible for it. And you didn't choose it. Yes. It happened to you. It, it slammed into you like a, like a truck or a lightning bolt. You didn't choose to make it happen. It's a divine appearance. Right. And there's that whole Catholic idea of it's not just the sin, it's the planning the sin. It's the decision, it's the contemplation of the sin. Itself is a sin. So when I hear people say that sex has to just happen naturally or that it's, it's not as good, what I hear as an old Catholic faggot is, oh, I hear the dual sin thing, the, the sin of commission and the sin of... Uh, Contemplation. But you know, I will make a distinction that, I, that to me is actually uh, very significant. Animals have sex. We have an eroticism. And that is a very different experience. Eroticism is sexuality that is transformed by the human imagination. And the central act of the erotic is our imagination. When people complain about the listlessness of their sex life, they sometimes may want more, but they definitely always want better. And better has nothing to do, you know, with positions and with acts. It has to do with energy, with renewal, with intentionality, with focus, with imaginativeness, with playfulness, with curiosity. That is the erotic. That what makes you feel alive. And that you have to cultivate. When you think sex just should appear, what you need to know is it appears in a context. And a context is a very receptive re relationship that enjoys that kind of connection, that kind of playfulness. We no longer have sex because we want eight children, we, for which you need a ten, because two are not going to make it. That made you motivated. <laughs> no, it's actually not funny. It just says there was a very clear motivation in the procreative model. And the procreative model took place at the same time as it was a marital duty for women. So who cared if she liked it, you know? Now we have two kids, maybe three or none, 
And the only reason we will have it is because it's pleasurable and it's a connection. And that needs to be cultivated. Not a single person expects to just play an instrument after 10 years without ever practicing. You know what else needs to be cultivated? Obstacles. You talk about Jack Morin's definition of, uh, of eroticism, yes. which is... Attraction plus obstacle makes excitement. Right. And right. what you lack in a long-term relationship... Is the obstacle. ...are the obstacles. Yes. And so you have to consciously, not just schedule the sex, but create obstacles that you as a couple push through. You know, if you're having sex over and over again in the same place, at the same time, in the same bed, with the same person, with the, doing the same small handful of Foregone sex acts... conclusion. Right. You're going to get bored. And you're not going to want to schedule that because that bores you. If you instead say, we're going to have sex twice this week, not in our bed, not in our house, and surprise me. You've That's created fun. an obstacle, and then your husband comes around the corner at work, and you're like, oh, I guess I'm going to get laid at work. <laughs> right? <laughs> And that's but scary. No, it's an obstacle. Because the real obstacle, the real obstacle is that he showed up at work, made you believe that this is what was going to happen, and then withholds it. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions from the house? Raise your hand. There's a hand raised right there and right there. Yes, and right there as well. I hear that um, marriage is kind of in a state of flux, and I think it has been for a couple hundred years now. Like, do you have a vision for like what 200 years in the future, like how we would conceive of marriage with the things that you know you're sort of um, unveiling? Marriage 200 years in the future. I'm not convinced we're going to have 200 weeks in the future at this rate, but. <laughs> I think that um, we don't have any idea, is really the answer. Uh, we know a few things. We know that we've gone from a traditional model of marriage to a romantic model of marriage, and we have now entered the self-actualization model of marriage. So in the Maslow ladders, we no longer need to marry for survival, and, 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 we, and we marry for higher levels of needs that have to do with self-expression, self-actualization, meaning, belonging, things like that. Um, that's the work of Eli Finkel in his new book, uh, The All or Nothing Marriage. So we know that the good marriages of today are actually much better than any marriage preceding in history, but there are very few of them. Um, and we also know that there are many people who... We know that family models have, have changed. We have single-parent families, blended families, blended families. When did that exist? You know, except after death, but not by choice. We have uh, commuter families, we have gay families, we have a new proliferation of families. When it comes to coupledom, we have remained rather monolithic. And then we have all the conversations about consensual non-monogamy and uh, polyamory. So. We had virginity, and that was the first barrier. This is a continuum. Virginity was nothing before marriage. Then we had pleasure and good sex within marriage, and now we have a conversation about wanting that freedom outside of marriage. That's the self-actualization. And who is negotiating a lot of this? A lot of it is the children of the divorced and the disillusioned, which is the boomers. So, these people want two models. They want value of commitment and stability, but they don't want it at the price of the loss of their individual freedom and self-expression. And so here begins a whole new communal model. The polyamory society, if you want, is a model that is actually quite communal. It redistributes after having had a very centrifugal period of everything in two people, we go broader. The only thing I can say is this. 
Friendship hasn't changed in the last 200 years, neither has sibling relationships. There's only one unit that has undergone an extreme makeover, and that's the couple. You know, and that couple, not only is it having more expectations and more pressure to succeed and to be happy than ever, but it is also massively isolated. Isolated. Nobody knows what goes on in the life of a couple. You know, in the past, you had porous walls, you heard everything at a neighbor's house. Today, your friends can divorce and you are surprised, and you didn't see it coming. Sometimes in straight couples, women talk to women, men talk to nobody. And when it comes to sex, everybody lies. Everybody lies. And if it's forbidden sex, they lie even more. And men lie by exaggerating and boasting, and women lie by denying and minimizing. <laughs> so where it goes, one thing is clear. We need connection. We need others. We can't survive alone. And we will always be creative if find, in finding new ways to create bonds and unions over time, because it is intrinsic to our humanity. The forms it will take, I don't know. So, <laughs> speaking of polyamory. Is that a for or against? <laughs> <laughs> what about the third? I'm as in love and invested in my extra relationship partner. What happens when you love both have you and how would you counsel the third? Oh, listen, I wrote an entire chapter on the other woman because there is no other man. There has never been another man that would be willing to live for 20 years in the shadow of another relationship. Neither, by the way, is the word homewrecker existing in the masculine. Um, this is a, and I thought there is no book that integrates the third. You know, the self-help books always look at the marriage and say that it is that relationship that is worth saving, and that is the primary one, and it's not always the case. So I learned so much from listening to these women, and sometimes men, but mostly women, sometimes men, especially when they're older, and see, because we live twice as long. So the story is really taking a whole new set of directions. You know, um, the first time, this is, a tiny bit different on the third, but it's just a moment that, you know, you have these moments where you suddenly, another thing opens up that you said, oh, wow. So this man comes up to me at a conference, after, like this afterwards, and he says, is it, is it still enough, is it also an affair if your wife no longer knows your name? Early onset of Alzheimer, 60s, you know, goes all the time to see her, but she's, as we call, ambiguous loss physically present, psychologically absent. And he meets another woman there who goes to visit her partner, male partner. And these two people develop a whole relationship together. And it's been two years now. And both of them have no intention. What would we say to them? Divorce? Yeah, because it's like you're cheating, right? And suddenly, the circumstances change the vocabulary. You can't even use that word anymore because these two people have found such comfort with each other in being able to go and attend to their partners who may be living like that for another 10, 15 years. And then you become very humble and very quiet in your judgments. Me, Esther Perel. So, um, you know, the third... The third is a human being. It's not just a nuisance in a marriage. That's the first thing. It's often treated as this toxic thing that you just want to get rid of. And I have done a lot of work with people to actually go and say goodbye to the third. When you've had a six-year affair, you don't just suddenly not pick up the phone or delete the text or ghost someone. 
you basically go and you say, I made my mind. I made up my mind. I chose, I chose to go home. Found out or not found out, it doesn't matter. I came to say goodbye. You've been the most amazing person in my life in the last years. I owe you so much. I will remember you. I will treasure you. I wish you all the best. I'm letting go of you. I'm setting you free. I lied to you. I lied to everybody. I've been a fucking liar. I've told you all kinds of things. I promised you next year, six months, one child out of the house, two child out of the house. I had no intention of ever coming. I can't do it. I never meant to do it, but I didn't want to lose you. This was the story. I am so sorry. I'm going. And you have to say goodbye with integrity. And I think that when you say goodbye with integrity, sometimes your partner actually respects you more as well. Because a partner who actually accepts somebody ghosting someone with whom they had a relationship for six years, I don't know that that's the person you actually want to be with. Let the record show that... You need a stomach for this stuff. Let the record show that Esther dropped the first F-bomb to me. <laughs> I thought it would be me, but... I'm high and drunk, but I kept it together. <laughs> Do we have any more live questions out there, down here? Oh, there is somebody already got the microphone. Somebody. Go ahead. Hi there. Um, I had a question about complicated infidelity. They all are, but in terms of when the person has a transgression with a member of that person's family, such as a sibling or best friend, I seem to hear of that quite a bit, and I'm just really interested in your thoughts on that. I have thoughts on that. <laughs> well, for instance, the, the example you cite, and it's in the book, and it's ter tremendously moving about the, the, the man whose partner, uh, wife, oh, God. Ha has that Alzheimer's. Was... Uh, no, I thought you meant another one. No, 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 that one. Um, when it comes to infidelity, the question that often isn't asked is people just hear so, somebody cheated, and that's all they need to know. And they fill in all the details, which is this person who cheated is a terrible person. And it, I am always challenging people to think, what are the circumstances? That it's not that simple. It's not black and white. It's not black hat, white hat. Um, you know, you, you know, find out this person's cheating on his wife. Oh my God, he's a terrible person. Yeah, his but wife when it's is with Alzheimer's. the best friend or when it's with the sibling of the person, I mean, there are pain points. And then there are unique pain points. This, yeah. Because then you lose two people. You lose your friend. You know, sometimes it's like you can accept your partner, but your friend. Um, it is, it is, and it is very common because people often will go with someone that is in their midst, that they've actually known, that they've observed, that they've cultivated a whole kind of, you know, slow build of seduction with over time. Um, and it is different. It's just a matter of gradations. I have a chapter in the book, I called it Little Shop of Horrors. It's basically, it's bad, and then there is what you say, all the unique bad. It's a shit show. <laughs> it's extremely... <laughs> I said it with my accent, it's okay. <laughs> shit show sounds classier with your accent than mine. Um, it is worse, there's no doubt about it, because you, you don't know where to turn. You don't know where to turn. That leaves you completely alone, betrayed by all. Um, and, and, it, and that's it. And, and then from not, there you have to climb back. I want to see people, I want to see more relationships survive in infidelity, but there are relationships that, there are infidelities that can't be survived. You know, when somebody says some, somebody cheated, I say, you know, if you slept with your sister on your wedding night, that's probably never anything you're going to be able to get past. If 20 years into a relationship, 20 years into a marriage, 20 years into a partnership and children and family, 
she slept with her personal trainer or he got a blowjob on a business trip. Maybe that can be got past. Maybe that should, the cultural default expectation should be that is something that a 20-year marriage should be able to absorb. Slept with your mom, your sister, your best friend? Probably not. That's probably the relationship extinction level event type of infidelity. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't define every infidelity as a relationship extinction level event because then they all will be and they don't all need to be. Yes. Any other questions? Where, where's do we have the a mic? Microphone? Somebody has the mic? Mics here, here, here. Here, here. Back there. Oh, there's a mic back there. Good evening. Uh, comment and then a question. I just recently moved back here after almost 25 years away, and I want to say, Dan, you are ever, every bit as entertaining now as you were when you were doing <laughs> drag bingo, not terribly far well, back here in the mid-90s. <laughs> On top as the question. Helvetica Ma Bold lives. <laughs> that was my drag name. Madame Perel, um, I've enjoyed this conversation enormously. It seems to me that it is a very westernized conversation. I'm wondering if you've had the opportunity to speak in Middle Eastern and Asian countries and what kind of response you've had there. You have. So, um, there are, two, there, there are a few incidents that really stand out for me. Actually, there are three parts of the world where I heard, had things that really... Um, in South America, in particular, what I kept hearing was that female... I would do interviews on interviews, and all they wanted to talk about was female infidelity. And this was not for this book. This was the previous book. I was like, why are you interested in female... I just wrote a book about f so many other things. Because it is the first fundamental challenge to the male chauvinistic status quo for the first time. Forever, you know, she kept everything together, he could do what he wanted. And her, and this is an economic shift in her, for the first time, she has a choice. She can leave, she can stay, and she can also stray. And so they literally talked about it as a, a, actually a social revolution. It's a kind of a pushback to a, a long-standing traditional male privilege. Then I go to West Africa, and women talk to me, you know, in very different language. It's, it, it's, bad, it's, it's a bad apple. It's a bad apple. I have bad luck. But, they, but she never says, I lost myself. I don't know who I am. My whole life is a fraud. You know, she just... She be, and partly because her marriage is not the center unit of her relational system. It is one of the many relationships. And so when this one frac fractures, she continues to have a group of siblings, group of female friends with whom she's connected that remind her who she is. It is not a crisis of identity. It is a broken heart. And then I go to Morocco and I say to them, you know, in America they keep telling me that it's a group of like 30 young women between about 16 and 19, 21 about. And, um, and I say in Marrakesh, and I said, you know, in America they keep saying that if your husband strays, you should leave him. And she goes, mais madame, if we had to leave our cheating husbands, all of Morocco would be divorced. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... There are, there are differences in, 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 the, in the cultural beliefs, but in the experience itself, you know, um, when someone rejects you, when someone takes you elsewhere, takes their desires elsewhere, when someone falls in love with another, these are universal themes. 
One more, another question? We only have time for one or two more. Go ahead. Well, I hope mine's good enough to justify the last two questions. Um, it's an awesome you. responsibility. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I mean, I moved to Seattle about three years ago and drove here from a southern Republican state. And uh, I remember listening to your podcast kind of over and over again on that many hours. Never thought I would kind of be having a chance to ask you a question. So Bring the mic closer. Super exciting. Um, my question for you guys, and it's for both of you, is um, if you were to find yourself uh, in the position of being a person in a relationship with someone who had gone through a traumatic um, infidelity and maybe doesn't have any access or you know, prior conversation about other ways of thinking about infidelity beyond it being a you know, traumatic ending event, um, two questions. One is, how do you support a person you know, first uh, in that position? But second, how do you open a dialogue about there being another way to think about it and maybe that not being a kind of permanent You buy them of both of Esther's books. <laughs> and I'm not being facetious. I really think that Esther is reframing how we regard and think about and process uh, infidelity and sex in the context of a long-term relationship, monogamous or non-monogamous. Um, and I do think that that would be the best place to start. Not to be glib, not to sell books. They're selling books in the lobby. <laughs> but you should buy both Esther's books for your friend. Affairs are not about sex. They are about desire. They're about the desire to be desired, the desire to, for attention, the desire to feel important, the desire to be seen, the desire to feel alive. And the first thing you do with that person is you pour your love onto that person. And then you will explain also that even though you have poured all your love onto that person, that doesn't mean that you don't have desires for others. And that doesn't diminish the importance of this other person. And that will be hard to swallow. It's a difficult conversation. But you will, the way you convince is not by having a, an, an intellectual discussion about it. It is by continuously showing up again and again and again. And then the paradigm starts to shift emotionally, not just in the head. All right, we'll take one more question, but it's going to be from the pre-submitted ones, because this didn't come up yet, and I'd like to uh -huh. hear your thoughts. Um, for a new counselor, for new counselors entering the field, what is your take on keeping affairs secret? Some therapists have a no-secret-keeping policy. Are there any benefits to keeping a secret, or is it more damaging in the end? Okay. So for all the therapists in the room, I'm doing a big event on November 11 in New York, a clinical training, and it's also being live-streamed. For all the people who are hurting in the room, I'm doing an online webinar where I'm going to the three stages, and we're going to talk together about how you can... If this speaks to you, this is not for everybody, you know? There's not a one-size-fits-all. This is one approach that needs to be added to the general vocabulary. But um, when I see a couple, any couple, and this is a big debate in America, back to the Western, non-Western question, I tell couples, regardless of why they come to me, when I see you, I may sometimes see you together and sometimes I will see you alone. And when I see you alone, these are confidential conversations, which means that both of you have the possibility to talk to me in private. Because I believe that sexual secrets come in many forms. Infidelity is just one. And the way I, ch I change this thing 
is because I had somebody who had been with a partner for 22 years and said, can't stand it, can't stand his smell, can't wait for it to be over, fake it the whole time. And I thought, would I tell this person, you should tell your partner. Ah, that became not so simple. For what? And this partner would not feel any less betrayed, would wonder who's been screaming at him, come again, come again, for the last 22 years, faking it. That'll shatter somebody, no less. And so I began to, to realize, you know, one needs to be a little bit more flexible about these things and think through in the moment, in the situation. There are times when I say, this has to be said. After a while, <clears throat> you get, your partner is, is, needs to know at this point, it's more cruel than not. There are times when I realize the affair is about to wind down and I'm saying, what is it you want to tell? What do you need to tell? You need to tell, I almost lost you. I went very far and I chose to come back and I'm so glad I came back. And that's the piece maybe that needs to be said. And why did you go so far? What allowed you to drift like that? And there are times when you need to say, listen, I am in this relationship because there are certain things between us that have never been discussed that you don't want anything to do with and it preserves the marriage. That is a real one. You know, that sometimes an affair actually preserves the marriage. It's a segmented view. You have said to me, I don't want any sex anymore. If I can't be bothered for the rest of my life, just leave me alone. And I don't want, because of that, to not wake up with my children every morning. I'm not prepared to pay that price. What am I going to do? If I talk to you about in a, being in a relationship with an agreement, you're going to say, I'm out of here. And so, you know, somebody asked me this week, what is the difference between privacy and secrecy? It's a whole huge subject. But sometimes something could have been private. But because one person says to the other, over my dead body, it makes the other person take it into a secret. We are sometimes also people who are lying invitees because we told the other person, I can't handle it. I don't want this. And we basically don't have a room for the conversation. These are difficult, hard conversations. Part of my work is to help people have these conversations and hopefully before there is a crisis. Esther Perel, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, Esther. Thanks for streaming this extra episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Tune in again soon.